From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. In this episode, I speak with Stephen Clasco, who is a medical doctor and a Wharton MBA, who is president and CEO of Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health here in Philadelphia. Prior to this role, he served as the Dean of the College of Medicine at Drexel University and CEO of Drexel University Physicians, also here in Philly. He's the author of a book called The Phantom Stethoscope, a field manual for an optimistic future in medicine. In this conversation, we talk about innovation in healthcare. Stephen's a visionary, and we focus specifically on the steps he is taking to ensure that medical students at his school, uh, Jefferson Medical School, provide great care and great caring for their patients. It's all about the inner life of both patients and doctors. And we talk about some other fascinating aspects of how modern medicine is changing and what these changes might mean for your life So now, without further ado, get set to learn from the innovative chief of one of the great teaching hospitals, Stephen Klasko. Dr. Klasko, welcome to our show. Thanks. It's really great to be here. Well, it's great to have you back on campus. Uh, You're a Wharton grad, so uh, I know you get back to campus regularly, and we we love to have you here. Let me start out by asking you about this term that you use, interactive action. Tell us about what that means to you and why it's so important to what you do every day. So, so this is what we've done. We, we've, we've gone to, to our docs and said, I want you to visualize yourself as a patient and figure out what you would want as a patient. And now let's just start doing it. So we, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, so this, this is interactive action? Yes. yes. Okay. So, so, so we, we started, we started a, a model where... Um, our doctors, our nurses, our population health professionals are all actually working together literally in a, in a simulated model. And we have things happen that, that would normally happen in a hospital. And we literally look for their first communication. And then we literally talk to them about what they can do in changing the way that they interact with the other folks. There's almost none of that in medical school. At the end of the day, I never learned how to interact with a, with a team member until something went wrong. You should send them to Wharton. See. Well, we could send them to Wharton, but not all of them have $160,000 to, uh, <laughs> ah, to spend. Right. So, but you're bringing that kind of education into the medical community. So, so this simulated environment, this is for the seasoned professionals who are already on the job. Is both, that right? Well, both. We created something for the seasoned professionals called the Center for Transformation and Innovation, but also for our medical students. Think about this. You mentioned Wharton. Everything about medical education is look to the left of you, look to the right of you, one of you will get in. Then you finally get in, right? Mm-hmm. All right, now I can relax and be a team. Oh, no, look to the left of you, look to the right of you. One of you will get your best residency. Then you get into a residency. This Constant competition. Yeah, 
look to the left, years you look later. to the right. Mm-hmm. right. And then we're amazed that we don't work as high-power teams. Mm. At Wharton, you know, is the most important decision you'll make is your study group because every grade you get will be a study group grade. You learn to be interdependent. So mm-hmm. what we've had to mm-hmm. do, a lot of my research has been on what makes physicians different than either other people or normal people. So interactive action is really taking active steps to really have physicians go from being autonomous competitive, hierarchical creatures, which is what our research showed, and have them become interdependent and not captains of the ship, but members of a team. And that's going to provide wow, better Wow, that sounds care. radical, Steve. Well, it is pretty radical. So, but finish your thought. Yeah. So, so, to, so to become a member of a team, what, what does that mean? So that means we actually have to teach doctors followership as opposed to mm-hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so like we thought it was a big revolution when we actually taught doctors leadership. Some of us are pretty good leaders. We're used to giving orders. You know, now it's like, how, how, how do you become a follower? Maybe the nurse knows more about, than this, uh, about something than mm-hmm. you do and mm-hmm. starting to listen. So mm-hmm. it's listening skills, it's interaction skills, and it's really making that an important part of everything they do every day. And we've been able to show that that provides better care because we're communicating better. You've studied this, and you've seen you've seen positive outcomes in terms of patient patient care. Absolutely, we we, we have an accountable care organization that we had started down in Florida, where, where we did this, and we literally were able to show that we inc- improved the the triple aims of patient satisfaction and cost and quality by just communicating and interacting in a very different way, not giving orders, but having the teams get together and make decisions together. So this is just one instance of changes that you're trying to drive in your sector of the economy. And I wonder if we can drill down a little further to look at uh, what you had to overcome, you know, what resistance you met, because you must have met some, if not a lot, in trying to uh, introduce this different mindset and really a different role uh, for physicians in the medical community, what was what was the most you know important hurdle that you faced? So the first th- the first thing that I had to do, and I actually did a study with Richard Shell from Wharton um, around what why docs don't get collaboration. And he, in Richard's way, he said, you know, I run this negotiation course, and the only people that don't get it are docs. He mm-hmm. says, I don't think they're stupid. So we did a study. We did a study uh, where we looked at uh, something called the Fezinet case that he uses at Wharton all the time. And we found that docs blindly followed rules. And when the, when the MBAs didn't get it, they said, we failed. When the docs didn't get it, we said, I'm really sorry. You lo- you've lost your job. You know, your husband or wife or partner won't talk to you when, you when you go home. We said to assume that's a bad thing. They literally said, well, at least the other person didn't win either. So we had much more of a win-lose type mentality. Doctors did. So, so we came up with this model. The way we selected educate physicians, we joined a cult around a competitive, autonomy, hierarchical, and non-creativity bias. So the answer to your question... Non-creativity? Yeah. Well, the issue is not that we're not, not, that we're not creative, mm-hmm. but when we asked MBAs and entrepreneurs if creativity was something that really helped them in their profession, they mm-hmm. said yes. When we asked docs, not so much. Uh-huh. So think about this. When okay. I went to Wharton, everybody said, wow, you are so lucky to be in a $2 trillion industry in transition. Things are going to be great when things are changing. I'd feel good on Saturdays and Sundays. Then on Monday, I'd be in the OR lounge, same set of data, and docs would say, oh, I wish things were the way they were 20 years ago. Mm. You know, I'm going to be in bad shape because of this. I'm telling my kid not to go, not to, go to medical school. Same set of data. They were threatened by change. But we were threatened by change because the, the MBAs felt 
the creativity would help them come up with an answer, mm. whereas the docs felt we had this P less than point zero zero one mentality, and we would be autonomous creatures losing control. All right, so in the study with Shell, you discovered what, and, and what would you do with that? So what we, what we discovered is, that again, that, the, that us docs had joined a cult, and what, what Richard now does is, he de- in his physician negotiations, he deprograms that cult before he teaches them collaborative negotiations. What I recognized as a dean of two or three different medical schools is that we have to start from the DNA. We have to change the DNA by selecting and educating physicians totally different than we do currently in today's medical schools. All right, that is a big, big agenda, Steve. So how do you, I mean, where do you start right. with the, the selection and education and socialization of, uh, of medical students? Um, what's, what's the starting point? So here, think about this. We still accept students based on science GPA, MedCats, and organic chemistry grades. Uh, I want my docs to be smart guys and, and somehow, gals, yeah, right? But somehow we're amazed that doctors are more empathetic, communicative, and creative. So I wrote an article for Marcus Welby to House, How Did We Get There? And you know, people Marcus to, Welby. People Marcus, out there might not know who okay, we're talking well, so about. So let me tell you about Marcus. Marcus would get up in the morning, go to the homeless shelter, take care of people for free, then deliver a calf because the cow was having trouble on the road as he was coming home to lunch, go to his family medicine office, and then do left ventricular neurosurgery. We were gods. Where we are everything. the Marcus Welbys? Now we Where have, are they? Now we have house. If you came down from Mars, you'd think we were all drug addicted, sex addicted, you know, very smart. Mm. analytic folks that you don't want to hang out with. Why? Mm. So because we continue to accept folks based on science, GPA, MedCats, and organic chemistry grades. You're right, Stu. You want your doc to be a really smart scientist. Yes. But is a doc with a 3.9 in memorizing biology much better doctor than someone with a 3.6 or 3.5? Or would you rather have a doc that has a 3.5, memorizes 92% of the Krebs cycle instead of 100%, but also can understand different colors of yellow or communicate with you? Mm -hmm. So what we did was we started a medical school where we actually chose the students based on emotional intelligence, where we had the normal selection criteria, and then we took another group, 56 students a year, that literally we chose based on self-awareness and empathy. So once they reached the minimums, we knew they were smart enough science, but mm-hmm. we didn't know what their science GPA is. We, even, we didn't even know where they went to school. We partnered with a company based out of Wharton called Telios that objectifies emotional intelligence for business, mm-hmm. and actually with the airline industry. Because the airline industry used to pick pilots totally based on technical competence and then realized that the guys that landed in the Hudson were not just because they were 0.01% technically competent or more technically competent. It was because of their communication skills and their ability to see second and third order consequences of decisions. So we use some of that technology to choose mm-hmm. these students. We're now in our fifth That's year. That's a good analogy. Uh, well, it is. The, the, it's the same thing. You want your your, your technical pilot to be, excellence is, is needed, but you also need to be able to communicate effectively and to listen well. And, and, and you know, we don't know that ninety eighth percentile is better than ninety fifth percentile. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that's what we did. So we have a very different group of, of of students, and we teach them differently. So once you make a certain cut, and it's a slightly lower cut than the top, 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 much lower. Yep. Then you test on other factors: self awareness, empathy. It's a little bit like Google. Pick my my son mm-hmm. has gotten a job at Google, and you know they don't want to see your transcripts. They mm-hmm. want to do be- behavioral clinical interviews. We take them to art museums. I'll give you an example. We take these applicants to an art museum, and we and we say, "What do you see?" And half the kids can only say what they actually see linearly. So concrete thinking. I see a woman in a white dress, a guy in a blue suit, and a snake. There's one of the things. Well, what do you see? I see a woman in a white dress, a guy in a blue suit, and a snake. I just told you. Yeah. Other other folks can say, "I think the snake represents a the relationship between the man and the woman." Why is that important? I've delivered 2,200 babies still, and. And it's easy to deliver a nice, healthy baby. You deliver a baby with a Down syndrome baby or something with, mm. that, that's different than what the patient expected. She asked the question, 
Doctor, what does that mean? It means that your chromosome, no, no, but what does it mean? It means that the baby might have pulmonary fibrosis versus another doctor saying, well, what it means is that your vision of having a perfect baby has to be adjusted. But let me tell you what that can mean. That seeing versus observing. Now you're helping me. The seeing versus observing hmm. is so much more important. So to see is, is, is what, in your view? Well, to see is to say, I see linearly what this baby is. I see the DNA mm-hmm. of, of this baby. To observe is to recognize what the patient's signal is giving you. And by mm-hmm. the way, we believe, and we're doing this study, we, you know, some of the studies, you talk about work and life in, in, in your books, and at work versus life at home. You know all the statistics about doctors, high rate of divorce, mm-hmm. high rate of drug abuse, et cetera. We believe that these folks that we accept based on self-awareness and empathy will not only be better doctors, they'll be better partners, they'll be better fathers or, or, or mothers, and they'll be better both in their work-life balance. Why is that important to you as the CEO of uh, Thomas Jefferson University and Health System? It's important to me because, frankly, I believe that um, in order for healthcare to fundamentally transform it's not just about the insurance companies. It's about the people that are providing the care. I believe that if we have a, a, a more stable and caring workforce as physicians and nurses, patients will get better care and we'll be able to provide better access because people will be looking at things mm-hmm. differently than just what's in the book. So so what else are you doing to kind of embrace the whole person of, uh, of the physician, you know, their, their capacity for empathy and to... And to respond to the to the real um, emotional signals of patients, um, how else is your approach to training, selection, and training of, of the next generation of of medis- medical practitioners uh, influenced by this idea of embracing the whole person? So, so one of the things we do, Stu, at Jefferson, which which I really love because we've also done this with our faculty, they don't not necessarily do so well, mm-hmm. is we have standardized patients, and we actually have the physician go through what they would normally go through. And then we have the patient critique them. Wait, so standardized patients, so, what is that? So these are probably frustrated actors or, or folks oh, that literally, okay. so, so we say, I don't It's part of training. Yeah, I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld, but they did, they did one of those where, okay. where Kramer was a standardized patient. We give them a case. You know, you're having chest pain and you're coming into the doctor. So they're acting like a patient and we video the doc. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of it, Normally, what medical schools do is they say, all right, did you ask all the questions? Did you do the right physical? We look at the communication skills. So we ask the patient, how did, how did he do? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he didn't seem like he was really interested in me. He was looking at his watch. Well, it's a little bit like, so when we do this with faculty, you'll say, that's ridiculous. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I was, I was listening to you. I wasn't looking at my watch. We'll go, okay, let's look at the video. Let's and we look bring at a behavioral it. psychologist. Mm-hmm. It's like your golf swing when, when, the, mm-hmm. when the instructor says, uh, you yeah. lifted your head. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, I didn't. Oh, let's look at the video. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, the guy's looking at his watch. He's interrupting. The, mm-hmm. So it, it, it really... Does it, does it break through then when they see the data? Well, you know, if you've been out for more than 20 years, they... You know, sometimes I'll say, well, I think that video must have been doctored or something. But I think for the, for the medical students, they really get it. Mm-hmm. Now, think about not doing that. Think about the fact that we, that we unleash docs on folks that hadn't had any of that communication training, mm-hmm. had any of that cultural personal bias training. Mm-hmm. So part of what we've done is we coach these medical students and residents so that their professionalism skills will be up to what they need to be. And, and so the fact that they have uh, lives that you know are enriched not just by what they're doing in the clinic, but also at home and in the community, why is that important to you in the future of medicine? Well, you know, because I, I think that's sort of my job as as a president of a university. You know, I, I, I laugh. I, I gave a talk for um, 
uh, U.S. News and World Report did did a thing on hospitals of tomorrow, and they mm-hmm. asked me to do uh, a piece on humans of tomorrow, what the humans of tomorrow will be like in the hospitals of tomorrow. And I started out with the, the, the editor, staff or the patients. The, the, no, the the the, pa- the doctors and the nurses. Mm-hmm. So I started out, and the editor of uh, of U.S. News and World Report introduced me, and I said, "You know what, Tim? I think you're. I might never get invited back, but you're a big part of the problem hmm. because what you judge us on." is not based on what you would want as a doc. You judge us on science, GPA, MedCats, organic chemistry grades, research dollars, but not really how are our folks doing that after they spend $200,000 at my university. So he looks at me and he says, you're right. I said, I am? He said, no, you're right. You'll never get invited back. <laughs> but but, but, the, but, but I, I view a good part of my job, yeah. since I charge these students $55,000 a year, mm-hmm. is that at the end of the day, I want to know that five years from now, my patient, my doctor that I, that came from Jefferson, say, boy, that is one caring. Not only does it provide great care, or she provide great care, but she provides great caring. And I, I'd also like to know that there are happy mothers or fathers or partners or whatever they are. I do view that as a big part of my do- job, not just teaching them microbiology and biochemistry and OBGYN and cardiology. How did you come to that understanding that that was an important part of your job, that people have lives beyond work that are that are enriching and meaningful? I think a, a lot of it was, frankly, when I went to Wharton mm-hmm. and realized, you know, that there's a different way of teaching things. I also took a year of law school and, and even got a different way of, of mm-hmm. teaching things. So I realized that the way we select and educate physicians, not only have we joined a cult, but it might not be the right way for the future. Mm-hmm. So I started to really look and say, gosh, so many of my friends have, like I said, gone through divorce and really not been happy in their profession. There was just a Wall Street Journal article. About 70% of, of physicians are unhappy hmm. that have been out for two or three years. It's very similar wow. to my research because we asked people out within the last three years. What are they unhappy about? Well, they're unhappy because they don't feel optimistic about the future. They're, they're unhappy because at the end of the day, what they were told would happen in healthcare isn't. They're mm-hmm. unhappy because they're autonomous, competitive, hierarchical, and they don't think creativity will help them. So our goal is to basically create physicians that are excited about change, mm-hmm. that when something like the Affordable Care Act comes and says, how can I help, as opposed to how can I go back to where we were 20 years ago? I do view that as, as, as part of my job. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I think Wharton did a great job. I, I learned under Dean Garrity, mm-hmm. and a good part of him changing the curriculum was being a con- quantitative microeconomics and macroeconomics school is not where the future is. It's mm-hmm. around global. It's around social skills. It's around leadership. Absolutely. And what I remembered in 1994, it mm-hmm. wasn't like everybody loved that because a lot of the faculty were microeconomics, macroeconomics, and quantitative faculty. I said, are you nuts? So, Steve, yeah. I was the first director of the leadership program here at the Wharton School, and Tom was my boss okay. into that. Well, well he, he's uh, one of my, the mentors that that, that, that that I looked at and said he was willing to take what was a top five school yes. and totally change the curriculum. It became number one. He was a visionary, and that was the reason why. And he, he provided all kinds of support behind the scenes and out in front for what we were trying to do in, in creating a leadership uh, program here. And there was a ton of resistance inside and out. And it took a lot, a lot of discipline and commitment to, to get that off the ground. Right. So, so I take the same when people say, are you nuts? You know, mm-hmm. if I have a 65-year-old faculty, that's not how we do it in medical school. Mm-hmm. We're starting a huge telehealth program. 
we're starting an institute for emerging health professions. And they said, that's not, what, that's not what we're used to. And I said, look, we might be 190 years old, which Jefferson is, but we don't have to act that way. Mm-hmm. So what I tell my board, I, I'm an obstetrician. I feel like I'm delivering a 190-year-old baby. Ooh. I have 190 years of baggage and really great stuff, mm-hmm. but we're acting like a startup company. Hmm. And so uh, having a rich life beyond work, I want to stay on that for just a moment. Why is that important for developing, you know, a caring and, you know, a highly skilled uh, uh, professional who can provide world-class care? How does that help? Because, because the fact is, if, if a pa- when a patient comes to you, I mean, I've delivered 2,000 babies, but it doesn't matter what your specialty is, a patient... The, the bond between a patient and a doctor is really something that doesn't exist in any other profession. Hmm. When you put on that white coat, people will tell you things and allow you to do things that, that you wouldn't do in any other profession. That's true. The problem is they're, they're expecting you to have them feel better. And feeling better is not just the, the I have a rash. You know, what does that rash mean? I can get the rash to go away, but, but what, what's that a reaction to? So even, you know, it makes me laugh. People spend $10,000 and go to these executive wellness things and the Mayos and Cleveland Clinics. Everybody's a little overweight. Everybody's <laughs> cholesterol is a little high. Everybody's a little stressed. Everybody's a little depressed. Everybody, you know, could have a better relationship with their wife. So and they that's get a little it. USB. Those five, so, yeah. that's, so uh, no need to go to the Mayo Clinic to find exactly. that out. And, and everybody gets a little <laughs> USB that tells them that. Then they go back a year later. They're a little overweight. They're a little stressed. Their cholesterol is a little Things high. Things haven't changed. Little, right. So the point is, what have we done? Mm. We're, we're very episodic. So I look at a model where we have healthcare coaches, where doctors, the goal, when, when you go and do just about anything else, if you're going to spend a year with a tennis coach, your goal is to be a better tennis player. If you're going okay. to, if you're going to, if you're going to go, if I'm your physician, Part of what my job should be is helping you feel better in whatever you want to feel better. So we're, what we're doing with our employees at Jefferson, we just started something called Exos. And basically it's a pilot to make our employees feel better. They tell us what they want to say about themselves a year from now, and we help them get there through nutrition, through exercise, through, through um, some counseling. What are they telling you? What's the big, what are the big items that you're hearing? What we're hearing is, you know, gosh, you know, I'd like to lose a little bit of weight. <laughs> I'd like to be a little less stressed. I'd like to have some ways of, of, of relaxing. Uh, I'd like to have a better relationship with, you know, my partner, wife, or husband. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we don't need $10,000 to know that. But now we're bringing in some people, not just your typical physicians, but some other people that can help them along that and say, here, here's an exercise regimen that we'll do for you. Mm-hmm. They can come at 6 o'clock in the morning before they go to work, and we'll get them there, and we'll have a healthcare coach that will assess how they're doing on a periodic basis. Medicine needs to go from these episodic sick things to this continuum of wellness, and that's what we're trying to do at Jefferson. It's so exciting. Stephen, uh, last question for you uh, is, is about creating change, which, which you seem to really have mastered and have so much passion and energy for. For people listening out there who are trying to create change in their world, you know, maybe they're not the CEO of a, of a major health system, but uh, they're running a mom-and-pop shop or uh, they're a division manager in a technology company or Whatever it is, uh, what have you learned about creating meaningful change in, uh, in organizations that, that you can pass on? So um, if you come into my office, Stu, you'll see two quotes. One's from Buckminster Fuller. It says, um, if you really want to change something, don't try to change the existing reality. Create a new model that makes the old way obsolete. And a little further in my office is another philosopher, Mike Tyson, who said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So I would argue if, if, I'm, if, if I'm running, whether it's a mom-and-pop shop or, 
or a, a academic medical center with 12,000 employees, if something needs to be changed, create an optimistic view for people around the future. We have mm. a great morale at Jefferson because people aren't whining about the Affordable Care Act because we're talking about what's the future look like in telehealth? Let's do it. Let's not wait till, for somebody else to do mm. it. What's the future look like in a healthy workforce? And people are excited about that. So I think what you need to do is take a Steve Jobs approach of what's going to things going to be like 10 years from now. Let's start doing it today in our whether it's a mom and pop candy shop or whether it's a academic medical center. <laughs> Words to live by. Thank you so much, Peter, for uh, – sorry, Stephen, I'm looking at my next guest in the hallway, referring to you as him. My, my apologies. I've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Klasko, who is the president and CEO of Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health System. Steve, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you, Stu. It was really a lot of fun. It's a ton of fun for us. To learn more about Dr. Klaskow and what he's doing to revolutionize healthcare. you can visit his blog, which is leadership.jefferson. Dot edu slash blog, and follow him on Twitter, which is at S Clasco. That's S K L A S K O. Thanks so much. Thank you, Stu. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephen Clasco, and that it stimulated some new ideas for you. So here's a challenge for you, an invitation. The next time you visit a doctor, make sure you take a read on how you felt about his or her ability to appreciate your emotional state. Then take a minute to write a note, email, to the head of the practice or the chief executive of the hospital just to let them know what this meant to you, whether or not your physician was tuned in to how you were feeling. By providing some feedback of this sort, you might very well contribute to the movement that Stephen Clasco's work is a part of to make patients' emotional experience a greater priority for physicians whose main focus is your body and thereby benefit medical practice generally. I think that's a good idea, and I hope that you do try it. And if you do, let me know. You can tweet at Stu Friedman or email me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, TotalLeadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. <music>